We're going to begin a reading in Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, and we're going to read in verse 9, and we will stop in verse 29, and uh, this story is, is likely a familiar one to you, and there's so many parts of this account. Uh, I love to go back a few chapters and kind of get all into the context of what happens here, because to me it makes it come alive even the more, uh, but I don't feel inclined to do that tonight. Uh, I don't even feel inclined to talk about the most famous line from this passage, which is almost, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons throughout this entire chapter that are so worth our consideration tonight. Uh, But there are some things that the Lord has spoken in my life and in my heart and um, that I want to try to share with you this evening. And so I I pray you'll be attentive and that God would use it uh, for his glory and for your good. Acts chapter 26. Now what's taking place here is that Paul is going through the process of appealing to the Roman government in his case. And so he's making stops all along the way. And this stop happens to be before the man King Agrippa. And so he comes in and he's bound. And there's a great group that's present. A whole bunch of people that are there. He comes in in chains. His legs, his hands, and he's going to give an account to what he's been arrested for. Kind of. He's going to talk about that, but he has an ulterior motive in what he's about to say. Because his objective is not to get off. Quite the contrary. He doesn't want to get off. He knows, I'm going to Rome. I've got bigger people to share the gospel with than here. This is just stepping stones. And all along the way, I'm just going to share the gospel. And so he knows I'm not trying to give my best legal defense. I am giving a defense of the message of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give an explanation of what that message did to me. That's his focus. And that's kind of the, the, there's a larger context we could talk about, but that's all I'm going to start with. And so this is him in the middle of his reply back. And he does say this to King Agrippa, which I think is noticeable. King Agrippa says to him, go ahead and speak for yourself. And so Paul says, be patient with me. Listen to what I'm saying and be patient. Now, no one here, everyone here knows that I'm not short-winded. I have a hard time being short-winded, to be honest. Um, Because there's so much sometimes in here, and I struggle to get it out in a timely fashion. And so I'd ask you the same thing tonight. Be patient. And try to hear the words of the Lord and what He might speak. Because perhaps 40 minutes in is when the Lord begins to speak to you. And I hope that you would be patient with me tonight. Verse 9, it says this. I barely thought with myself... That I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison. Having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue. And compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way 
a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all, were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister, and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should arise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. That'll conclude our reading this evening. That's Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through verse 29. And we cut off some of the narrative there, but for time's sake, we tried to do that. We would like to take a scripture focus, perhaps, or where our thought will be derived from, though we'll comment on multiple parts of the text, I think, will be verse 16 of our scripture reading. And this is Jesus' words replying back to Peter. He says this, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. The title of our message tonight is called 
for a purpose. Called for a purpose. As is often the case when we talk about salvation, even the word itself puts a particular focus on the eternal judgment that we're escaping. At least I think that's what it's putting its focus on. We could say that we're saved from sin. But I think when most people think about the word saved or salvation, we tend to think about the eternal judgment of God that awaits all of those who do not repent of their sins, as Brother Brian mentioned, and put their faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so in revival services such as these, there tends to rightfully so be a emphasis that is proclaimed to all that says, take your mind off the temporary and think about that which our world avoids, discourages, covers up, tries to make sound ambiguous, tries to argue over. Don't think about that thing, but think about eternity. Consider what is beyond what the eye can see. See beyond the visible to the invisible. And we, as we have throughout this revival, we talk about salvation in terms of eternity, and we ought to. But I want us to recognize tonight that salvation has multiple dimensions to it. Or in other words, when God saves you, He is not, as I've referenced many times before, just giving you a get out of hell free card. And I think very often that's what people have the tendency to put this laser focus on and lost friend tonight that might be where your laser focus is tonight but I want you to know that if that's the only consideration you have you're shortchanging what God does in salvation it is much greater than that this year at the minister school we had a lesson by brother Doug Skinner who I think the first 20 minutes of his lesson more concisely and powerfully described the many dimensions of what happens when a person, the instant a person gets saved, than any I've ever heard. So many things happen. And Paul, I I noticed as I was going back today, this had never crossed my mind. I told Brother Brian I was laying in bed this morning and as I was kind of groggy and getting up, this thought came to me and it just woke me up. And it made me really alert and I had to get up and get going and I wanted to come over here and and get to the word because I began to recognize as I was going through my mind's eye considering this passage and and the two other times where Paul gives his account of his conversion in Acts uh, 13, I believe it is, in Acts 22, I began to think about what was it that Jesus spoke to him whenever whenever he was saved? Like what was it that God told him happened or was going to happen? And I noticed that he did not focus upon the eternal in any three of those accounts. He didn't say, now you've been saved from the wrath that was to come. I believe Paul already knew that. Having been deeply educated in the truths of the Old Testament, I think he believed in uh, Jehovah. I think he believed in hell and in heaven. I believe he had a lot of those fundamental beliefs. But what God was about to do was turn this man's world upside down. His life here was going to be different. And so he tells him, 
Your life from this point forward will never be the same. And that's why I've called you. He's not saying I didn't call you for an eternal purpose. He did that too. But I want you to know, lost friend tonight, young saved friend tonight, elder saved friend tonight, when God saves us, in that moment of salvation, he calls us to sainthood. He calls us out of the miry clay. He sets our feet upon a solid rock and he establishes our goings. Goings is active. Our direction, our walking. He establishes that. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have the freedom God grants us to choose whether to follow his goings or deviate. But that does not dismiss the fact that God has a plan for us. Tonight, I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about God's call for the saved person's heart, or their life, rather. And I want to put this before not only saved people, but also I want to put it before lost people. I want you to know that God, whenever he saves us, does not then abandon us to our own devices. He does not abandon us and say, now I want you to go find and figure out what you need to do in life. You need to uh, find a path that would be best for you. God does not do that. And in my childhood years, as I was growing up in church, I didn't often hear a sermon to those that were saved that were not God-called preachers. I didn't much hear about how God has a divine call in our lives where if we would seek him with all of our heart and continue to pursue him, that he will direct our paths in every area of our life. Tonight, with God's help, I want to try to do that. I want to try to do this through the life of the Apostle Paul. Because as Paul is relating his conversion experience to this man, King Agrippa, what is key for him is that he wants to express what his life was beforehand. And so he tells him, he says, you know, I was a great man among the Jewish people. I suppressed this way of Christianity and he gives this lengthy description of all the things that he did. And I want you to know that he had great ambition in that cause that he was seeking after. And not only did he have ambition, but rather he tells us in the book of Galatians that he had actually achieved and excelled beyond many of his contemporaries. Galatians 1, I've got a mark says this. For you have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jewish religion. Conversation just means my life, my lifestyle. You heard about my life when I was worshiping with the Jews. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. But... When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Oh, what Paul is describing here is just a different, a little more expressive way of what he's telling King Agrippa. He said, and I love how he said he revealed his son in me, not to me. 
but he revealed his son in me. Now listen, there's a a great distinction between that because even tonight as I lay out before us this Christian life and what God desires the Christian calling to be, all I can do is put this before you. I can say this is what it is, but God has to put it in you. God has to convince your heart, show you, and he can beyond any doubt that the Christian life, living one according to God's will, far exceeds any achievement, anything that you would seek in this life. God has to show that in you. Paul tells him, I thought I was doing many things great. You know, by other people's standards, he was doing a lot of things great. He was excelling. He was sitting at the feet of that desired teacher, wasn't Gamaliel? He was sitting at his feet. He was a a student of his. He was looked upon with this, uh, no doubt people would say about him, that's a special young man. He's going to do great things. He's going to change the world. And then it says this. At midday, O king, I saw in that way a light. You know what he's, the way he's talking about, I think is literal, but also metaphorical. He was in the way of going to Damascus, but he was also in the way of that life. And then all of a sudden, this light shined from heaven, and it was brighter than the sun. You know, I've had, I've had a couple experiences like that. Not many times in my life, but there's a few times in my outline. Now listen, he's talking about something that happened for the Apostle Paul that is perhaps unique. He's talking about not only a call to repent of his sins, because I think here in this account that he's giving, not only does Paul get called to repentance and yield to that and receive forgiveness of sin, or in other words, get saved, but simultaneously or just after that, God also calls him to the gospel ministry, to be a minister of the gospel. And so he's saying, I was walking this way way and I was successful and I was happy in it and then all of the sudden a light shined about me and it knocked me to the earth and it shook me now now I want to say this and and bear with me as I try to explain this this morning or this account of my own conversion experience when I was 10 years old I was brought up from the time I was about six or seven is when we really got into church firmly and when we were in church firmly from that time until I was 10 years old my uh, my family my church was very faithful in teaching me the gospel and I understood the precepts of God's word to the best of the ability of a seven or eight year old or my capacity was and I got to the time where I was 10 years old and I felt like you know I've been taught what right and wrong is and I know I've been told what salvation is going to be like and so I had these expectations coming and so when I was down I was seeking the Lord and I'm not going to go through my whole experience tonight but when God saved me I noticed this change but I'll say this it was not as stark as what this was or even what brother Ambrose shared with us something happened But I was told something would happen. I was prepared for it. Yes, I was in the darkness and then saw the light. But I had heard for years of my life what light was like. 
It had been explained to me over and over again. And so the contrast or, or experientially what I experienced, I would not that day have said, you know, oftentimes I've heard it. One of the things that I try to be aware of as a preacher of the gospel is I never want to exaggerate. Because any form of exaggeration can plant unintended seeds that we don't mean to be there. And I think sometimes when we're describing things that happen, let us beware to use the strongest adjectives we can find if they're not fitting. If they're not fitting. As I listened to Brother Ambrose, I think they were very fitting, Brother Ambrose, because he had quite the contrast, didn't he? Even so much that his daughter testified about the contrast that took place in her dad. And that was part of her own conversion experiences, seeing and witnessing the change that was in him. For me, the change, it was there. And it was discernible. I remember, as I've heard this week, people express what took place when they were saved. I remember walking out of the church, and, and we had at our, our church, we had these, uh, these blocks, you know, these parking blocks. And so I was going out there like I did almost every time we left church. And I was kind of hopping along these parking blocks. And I remember my cousin came out and she said, she was lost and she was my age. And she said, what does it feel like? And I I, I thought about it for a second. I said, I just feel so good. I just feel so good. and, And I feel like there were all these fireworks going on in my heart when I was lost. And now they're gone. There's just a peace. Now, I didn't shout. I didn't scream for joy, in part because I didn't understand what happened. I didn't understand it. So, if you asked me today and you said, Brother Brad, what was the greatest day of your life? I would say, the day I got saved. But let me add something to that. I know that now. I know that now. Why do I know that now? Because I've gained my understanding. You know, at the heart of joy is understanding. The more you understand about something, the more joy can be harvested. So you know what? There have been many days since then that I have rejoiced much greater and felt the overwhelming sense of joy much more than the day I got saved. You know why? Because when I was lost and I became saved, what I knew is that people had told me, you're going to feel peace, you're going to feel a relief, and I did. But I could not at that young age possibly comprehend what took place. And as years go by, and as I hear the preaching of God's word, and as I study God's word, and as I have experiences where heaven descends, and where the Spirit of God fills me, and my cup begins to grow and grow, and I have a greater capacity to receive the understanding of what took place on that day. My joy exceeds the day that I got saved over and over and over again because I understand it now a lot better than I did then. I didn't have at the moment of my conversion this bright light knocking me down with joy. Oh, but I've had many since then in reflection of what took place that day. Where sometimes... I'll just tell on myself, I'll be driving down the car, driving down the road shouting. I'll be driving down the road singing, raising my hands, looking to the heavens. I'll be in this room praying, just pacing this room. 
all by myself. And God will bring truths to my heart. God will begin to fill me up and rejoice. And you know what often goes through my mind? Scriptures that God has allowed me to come to know at a deeper level or begin to relate to those truths of other people. And I rejoice and I rejoice and I rejoice over and over and over again. Paul had this midday experience where the brightness of the sun hit him. I've only been saved once, but I've had the sun, I've had the glory of God revealed to me over and over and over and rejoiced in that a hundredfold to what I did the moment God saved me. That's one of the exciting things about the Christian life for me, is I realize that if God will help me to keep my pursuit of him, that will grow. That's amazing to me because sometimes I would just bust. I mean, sometimes the joy is so deep. The love is run so real. The love of God is shed abroad in my heart in certain moments to such a full capacity. I think, how could it get any more? But it can. Why? Because the love of God is infinite. The only thing that halts it is his willingness to expose it and my capacity to take it in. He had this experience where at midday, O king... A light shine from heaven. And he has this voice speak to him. And he says, who are you? Imagine how terrifying those next words are. I'm Jesus. Whenever Paul was breathing out threatenings and slaughters, do you know who they were directed to? Jesus. He had angled, he had oriented his entire life out of extinguishing the name of Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, this divine appearance happened, and he is knocked to the ground, and he's caused to go blind. And he says, who are you? I'm Jesus. Oh, how, how terrifying it must have been to be him. And then Jesus says this, rise, stand upon your feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. I love the fact that God has called us, each one of us uniquely to serve him for a purpose. And that's very exciting to me. I'll tell you, it, it, always has, it hasn't always been. When I share some of these private thoughts, I never want you to think that I thought those thoughts were right when I was younger. But I feel like it's important for me to share them with you because some of you may have had or are having similar experiences. But I remember sitting in church after I had been saved and there was all this exuberation whenever I, I, I told about my salvation experience. And they, they, they just really lifted me up real high, not in a proud way, but just got my expectations really high. And then, you know, we, we, I joined the church a year later. Unfortunately, it took a year. I wish I would have done a lot sooner, but it was a year later I joined the church. And, and then it was like, well, now what? Now what do I do? And I felt like, and I'm not saying this is true, I felt like there was one class of people that could possibly have a purpose. And that was preachers. And everything else was subliminal. It was to the side. It, you know, it wasn't that important. And those other things involved being a song leader and a piano player 
maybe occasionally sing a solo, be the clerk, which sounded like an awful job, right? being the treasurer, and that that was the limitations of what God could call you to. Maybe a Sunday school teacher. But even as a little boy, as those options would ruminate through my mind, I would think, that's it? So if you're not a minister and you're a woman, so you can't be, so that immediately rules out 50% of people to have this deep-rooted, God-divinely-appointed purpose. I would think, how disappointing. And then I would watch the song leader and the piano player, and, and to me, from a kid's vantage point, that seemed so boring. Like, you mean you live all these hours of the week only so you can stand up for 15 minutes and go like this? That just seems so empty. Or at least if it's not empty, it's short-lived. Why would God create somebody to live all of these years for a 15-minute segment once a week? I'm telling you, honestly, I may not have had those exact reasoning, but over time, those are the things that were revealed in my mind and in my heart. I would be curious. There's got to be more. Well, praise God, there is a lot more. And I think there has been this fear amongst God's people when we have seen the explosion of modern Christian religion and we have seen the abuse of all these things called ministries and we have seen people trying to use all of these various ministries in order to compel people to come in so that if you have more people, you must be successful. You can have more money. You can have more things. You can do more fun. And it's operated like a business. And so perhaps it has scared us away from telling people, young people in particular, there is a divinely appointed purpose that God has called you to and what you need to seek to do is apprehend the reason why God apprehended you. Grab a hold. What's the alternative if you don't? You're going to live your life according to your purpose. Now here's why that's an awful thing. I think my opinion I taught seniors in high school. I could not do this because I was a public school teacher. But oftentimes we ask, as kids begin to get older and they begin to go into the high school, we say, what do you want to do with your life? Awful question. I mean, let's just be real. Let's just be, would you ask, would you trust yourself at 16 to know what you are going to face in this life, what you needed to do for the rest of your life at 16? That terrifies me, to be honest. Just go ahead and take everything that's happened since then, go back in the future and say, here you go, 16-year-old self. You choose what you're going to do the rest of your life. That ought to be a terrifying prospect. Because what you know now, with the experience and the wisdom, is that life is altogether different and the world is altogether different than you could have ever imagined at 16 years old. Frankly, we ought not to care what they want to do with their life as much as we ought not to care what we want to do with our lives. It's not about what you want. And it's not about what I want. But let's say for a moment that the end goal was our happiness. It's not at all. But let's suppose that it was. Do you think retaining control of your life 
so that you can control it will lead you to more happiness than God taking control of your life and leading it to more happiness. Now, the goal of life is not happiness. But I'll tell you this. When you hand God your life and he takes control of it, the first thing is it's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing. I like control. When we drive any trip, I like to drive. Now, I'll let my wife drive. I'm just saying I like to drive. And if I'm not driving, I do what she does. We tell each other how to drive. And we're governing where we're going to turn and what we're going to do. I like control. I'm also a planner. I like to know where I'm going. And when you give God control of your life, he has absolute control. He doesn't just have control of your spiritual life. He has control of your life. Every part of it. So here's what I would ask a young teenager. What does God want you to do for a profession? Because here's what you don't know. You're going to go to these jobs. I think of Brother Justin sitting back there. He went to school to be a respiratory therapist. He had no idea when he was going through RT school that one day he was going to work at a hospital, I think in IU, down in Bloomington, a good 45 minutes away from where he lived and where his church was at, and that there was going to be a a young girl that he worked with named Misty. And he was going to have this opportunity to share with Misty the gospel, and she was going to come to church, and she was going to get saved, and she was going to meet a young man in our church, and they were going to get married, and they've had a life together, and they're in church now. And Brother Justin, when he set out in college to become a respiratory therapist, had no idea that in God's providence, he was going to guide him to change other people's lives around him whom he did not yet know. But God did. You know, that's one of the things that I noticed about this when when Jesus is speaking to Paul here. He says this, "I'm I'm going to call you for a purpose. I'm going to make you a minister and a witness of the gospel of things which thou hast seen and things which you've not yet seen. So when you surrender your life, you say, God, I don't want control. I'm limited. I'm sinful. I'm selfish. I'm fallen. I can't trust myself with the most valuable thing that you can entrust me with, and that is my life. And so, God, I take it, and I put it in your hands, every part of it. My profession, my spouse. Oh, listen to me, young friend. Put the decision for your spouse in the Lord's hands. I believe there is no carnal decision that will have greater implications on your life, here and now, and in eternity, than who you marry. You ever had a friend whose life was destroyed by their spouse? I have. And the scars were not isolated to them. All those people around them. And then sometimes they bring children into the world. And you can see from a distance the generational pain and suffering that will be caused out of those things. And yet... In the initial attraction, none of those things are known. 
and the, and the initial talking about what life is going to be like and planning for it. And, and we're so compatible now. Well, let me tell you something. As you get married and as you progress in life, both of you will change. And the person that you married and you to that person will in some regards be unrecognizable. You're completely different. Because life changes you and life changes your spouse. And so you don't have the expertise to know who is best for you. And so if you were wise, what you would do is say, God, I don't know. This young lady, this young man, he seems right. He's got all the descriptions. But you know, Lord, you know alone. That's where his parents and his family and his friends, we've got to be so gentle. We can't push into something. You know, we gotta, we got to make sure that they're a godly person. we got to make sure that they meet so many of these things that God tells us to find in a spouse. And if it is our responsibility, we ought to step out if we feel like our friends and our family is going to make a mistake and do something wrong to speak what we feel like God would have us to. But in the end, let us be careful. Let us prompt and let us encourage. Follow the Lord's will for what you do because you don't know what lies ahead. We don't know what life is going to have ahead of us. But God does, and he has a calling which answers every question that lingers in our minds about what lies ahead. So I say, Lord, it's your control. And then what do you do? You just put one foot in front of the other. And you just wait on God's timing, because what does the Bible say? The just shall live by faith. We don't pursue in a hasty fashion material things. We follow after or pursue, as Thessalonians tells us, righteousness and faith. We pursue those godly attributes of what he's trying to do in sanctifying us and transforming us. And we leave to him accessorizing our life how he sees fit. And praise God when God saves us. He gives us this promise that I have called you for a purpose. I will not leave you alone in life. Paul here, he's given this promise of a purpose of things which he knows now and things which are in the future that he doesn't understand. You know, at first, I think in my Christian walk, you know, when I, when I was 17 years old, I got called into the ministry And that was probably the most profound, light-shaking moment for me in my life. I mean, it really really changed who I was as a a young adult. And I I wish some of you knew me before then. And and I hope, I think you would say there was a big change. I know if there wasn't a big change on the outside, I think there was. Because I know there was a big change up here. Things inside of me changed. And suddenly, you know that... I knew I got to give God everything, but I didn't want to. There were areas of my life, and I've shared some this week, and I've shared sometimes in the past. Of, you know, basketball was a thing that was important to me, and and I had these ideas about an occupation. There was this period I went through for a couple months where I thought, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna really be ambitious. I'm gonna become a doctor. And I would rationalize it. I would justify it by saying, you know, I'll be a good doctor, and I'll go on mission trips, and I'll do all these other things. And yet I knew, Daddy, that's not what God is calling me to do. And then 
slowly. You know, I, 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 want to edif- I, want, I want to say this. I don't like talking about esteeming men from the pulpit, but I think at times there's a reason for it. Brother Moran and Brother Reynolds are here tonight, and they were two that had a big impact on me. Because I saw men's lives, them and others like them, who I saw what I perceived to be men who walked away from what Paul walked away from. A life of their own design. And I saw them offer their lives. Valuable lives. Talented lives. Ones that could have excelled like Paul. I saw them lay them down. And then here's what really got me. It seemed to me that everywhere they walked, there was fruit. Everywhere they went in their life, there was just fruit. Or there were people in their life that they had an effect on. And I would listen to men and I would listen to women in private conversation, unbeknownst to them, saying, you know, I was struggling with this. And then I heard brother so-and-so say this. I heard brother so-and-so teach this. Or I asked them this question and it, it changed me. It helped me. It helped me overcome the obstacles in my life and the stumbling blocks in my life. And I saw how significant the change was, how real the help was, how life-changing that when I partook of the fountains of their life, how much and it helped me and changed me and reoriented my life. And I thought, you know, I see what they're doing. And that seems to be something that comes from God that has eternal fruit that's going to last well beyond this life that is maybe forgotten by men but will be remembered by God. They're touching people's lives at the very deepest level you possibly can. Praise God, I've been a beneficiary of that. And I wonder sometimes without some of you in my life having affected me and touched me in certain ways. And I thought, you know, I I want a life like that. I want a life where I can see divine purpose. I want a life where I can see something beyond boastfulness and bragging and the applause of men. But it comes at a high cost. Because you must forsake all and follow him. All and follow him. Let me me tell you something. This is my honest opinion. I think in this room right now, when I look upon so many of you, and so many of you are my good friends, whom I love very deeply, I don't see, when I look at young people, I don't see, not that they're they're not important jobs. I don't just see song leaders. I don't see Sunday school teachers alone. No, I, I see so much more. I know some of you can write. Brother Danny Hayes can write. I know that. I remember... You know, I got this blog thing going on that we're trying to get going. And Brother Brian sent me some, and all these different people have sent me some. There's one that stands out in my mind. It's the one Brother Danny sent me. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That's the title of it. I read that during COVID. My heart was being rent. You know what I thought? I want the world to hear this. I want the world to hear this. 
I think of the, my sons are beginning to read, you know, and, and we try. They, they go through things so fast. I think, man, we need some good Christian novelists. You know, some people who are imaginative that can, can put in these books, these little kid books, you know, 100 pages long, stories that are, are so captivating, but they have God's Word weaved all throughout it. And I want to be able to hand my kid a book and say, oh, read this. And I have complete confidence in the author who wrote it. You see, what I see when I look out is not somebody who's a a song leader. I see people who can write. I see people who have affections for children. And I think about the orphanage in town. That's run by a Church of Christ church. And I think... Why? Sitting right here among us, we have people who love children at their very core. Whenever we got to the church, Kathleen was pregnant. We had three or four members come up to us and say, well, when that kid's born, better watch out. Sister Lori's going to grab him. I see people who can I told you the other night who I want my boys to have an impact on. I'll tell this story, and I hope you're taking these things in the right way. I'm not trying to lift up men, but I feel like it's important to say these things. When we moved here for six months, it was hard for us, it was was hard for our children, some of our children to be here, moving away from home. I underestimated that. I underestimated that pain. And it really shook me. And for six months, every two or three days, Sometimes even more frequent. We put them to bed and then tears. And I said all the things I could say over and over. And I finally ran out of words. And six months passed. And one of my boys, we were headed home from somewhere. And I had noticed we had gone like about a week. And they had stopped crying. I said to my son, I said, it seems like you're doing a lot better living here. He said, yeah, Dad, I am. Brother Wheeler's really been helping me. I said, really? Brother Wheeler's been helping you? How's he been helping you? He said, well, when I talk to him, he makes me feel important. I want my children. I want the children of this community to be impacted by you. I see songwriters, you know, there's supposedly this great battle between the younger and the older generation about styles of music that exist today. You know, and you got older people who tend to prefer the traditional hymns and and some of the songs that were written during the quartet era, the Christian quartet era, and then you have some younger people who tend to prefer more contemporary music in some of those styles. And, and even the way the music is written is very different than what, is, you know, than what the traditional music is. And, and in churches, even of our faith, it's ripping churches apart. And to me, there's a, such an easy solution to that. Let's write our own. Like, why is that so extreme? Why is that so hard to believe? 
that amongst this group of people sitting right here, that God might have given a gift to someone in here to lift up. And one of the most important things that we do in our worship service is to worship God in song. This form of worship will last for all of eternity. Preaching will cease. Praying will cease. Singing will be in eternity. It's a focal point of what we do. And there is something so unique about music that stirs the human soul and seems to bring unity to the human spirit. And yet God may call one of you to become a songwriter that at the focal point of what we're doing, you can take the word of God and and mix it with a melody that is beautiful, that can resonate in the souls of men and women. And at times bring people out of the deepest and the darkest depressions and fears can reveal God's word to somebody. Have you ever been listening to a song and God brought one of the verses to a song into your mind and all of a sudden it was like a light in the darkness. You understood something that you had never before. How many times have I sat in the middle of being discouraged and sung, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies you bring. How many times have I thought about how great thou art? It is well with my soul in Christ alone. The power of the cross. You don't think that God might not call you to go. What a divine purpose. As opposed to what? Well, being an engineer. Now, hear me out. Nothing wrong with being an engineer. It's a means to an end. The means is to provide. That's not your purpose. Why? Everything you design is going to be destroyed. God does not put Christians to the plow of the temporal. He puts us to the plow of the eternal. And so in everything we do, we ought to ask, God, where is the eternal weaved within what I'm doing? And if it's merely a means that I can provide so that I can then set my affections on, or if it's a means to evangelize to those people who I'm going to be around, or if it's a means by which you have made me wealthy so that I can give and give and give. You know, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians that one of the gifts that God has given to the church is the gift of giving. Some people God has given this this amazing gift to make money upon money upon money. And it just seems as though God opens the doors. And what I pray for those people is that God with that money would give them hearts that overflow with generosity, that overflow with vision for the kingdom of God, that they see beyond the temporal They see beyond the investments of of finances in the future of this temporal world. And they see the kingdom of God needing to be built up and laborers spread out all over the world. Not only here locally, but all over the world. And they're trying to pursue the things of the kingdom. And what they stand in need of is some money to help them put their hand to the plow and not be distracted by the things of the world. And so they need it. Perhaps that's your calling. Don't assume that. Perhaps that's your calling. You know, Paul, I'm going to begin to close, but Paul here, he, had he been mindful of what he was giving up, 
here's May of what would have crossed his mind. Okay, I've, I'm at the top of my class in Gamaliel School, so I'm well known. I'm the valedictorian, we'll say. My knowledge and understanding is revered by many. I'm likely a part of the Sanhedrin. I think there's a place even in here, actually, where it says, I cast my vote for something. Excuse me, I think he's talking about the Sanhedrin, perhaps. So he's a part of this special club of religious elites. Now he's getting these documents of authority where he is the chief executor of it, right? He's the one that's in charge of it to execute it. So he has got all this esteem and he might have thought to himself, you know, I've got a little following. I've got people who look to me and I'm young. Imagine when I rise up the ranks and I'm at the top, maybe one day being the high priest of Israel, maybe that's not such a far thing to consider. And in that role, what would he have done? He would have affected the hundreds Perhaps the thousands in this world. Now let's consider and set that aside for a moment. And let's consider, please hear me, what God had envisioned. When God looked down and he saw Paul, even in this fallen state, he said, oh, Paul, you're thinking too small. You want to affect the thousands? How about the billions? How about Paul? I'm going to lead you. I'm going to call you. And he tells us out there. He says, there's a people I've called you to. You know, I had an experience kind of like this. I was 19 years old. I'd been preaching for a couple years. And I'd been traveling a whole lot to preach. Going everywhere. Every, every time I could, I could, I would preach. Everywhere I could go. And I, I had this. I was, I was in college. I was in my dorm one night. And this, this thought overwhelmed me. There's a people out there that you've got to find. There's a people out there you got to find. I thought, what? And all the next day when I was at school, that thought just kept going through my mind. There's a people out there, and you need to find them. And that bewildered me, but it stuck with me. And finally, I went to two people. One of them was my dad. I said, Dad, you know, I'm not, I'm not Pentecostal here, but it feels like the Lord is just telling me that there's, there's this people out there. And I just had this Feeling like I need to be ready, prepare, prepare for it, prepare for it. So, that's what I did. How did I prepare for it? Well, I just thought, you know, whatever the station is, I know I need this. So I'm just going to really throw myself at this. And then one day I got this call. I remember I was cleaning this car. I had a car detailing business. I was cleaning this car out in the middle of this apartment complex that I was in. I got a phone call. Still so vividly remember the call. I said, hi, my name's Kenny Sexton. I'm from Fairland Baptist Church. I was given your number. Are you a Baptist preacher? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, would you come preach at our church? I said, what church? He said, Fairland Baptist Church. Well, I grew up in Fairland. And we drove 30 minutes to church my whole life. Because there was no sound church near us. And this church was about four minutes, five minutes from where I grew up. So I thought, how, what in the world? Yeah, I'll be there. So he gave me a date, June 26th. Okay, I'll be there June 26th. And I showed up there and there were about 60 or 70 people. 
And I knew one. One of my grandfather's best friends. They played music together. And when I was a little boy, I'd go out in their garage. They'd stay up late, really late, and they'd play the guitar, all these old songs. And I'd go out there. And, and to be honest, I went there because they had pie. And my grandma would make pie. And so if I went out there, I'd get pie, and I'd go back in. And so I knew this guy, and, and, and I recognized him, and he recognized me. And I got up, and I preached. I got done, and they called me back. They said, will you come back and preach for us? I said, yeah, I'll come back and preach for you. So I preached again, and I started feeling a burden for this place. But they were not a sound church. So they asked me, they said, will you be our pastor? I said, I can't do that, but I'll preach for you. I'll preach for you every time the doors are open. And they agreed. And so Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, I got to preach. And there were about 60 or 70 people there. And I was in the middle of preaching and about four or five months in. And this church member came to me very distraught. And said, was weeping. And said, I've been a member of this church for a long time. But I'm not saved. And I've just realized that I'm not saved. I said, well, you, let's pray. God can show you. They had accepted Christ a long time ago. They'd never been saved before. Over the next course of the next few weeks, guess what? They got saved. And then one of the members said, hey, Brother Brad, we have this youth center in town. We bought the old Masonic Lodge. Personally, me and my wife have leveraged our house to buy this Masonic Lodge because there's this place, a youth center, where like 100 kids are coming every week. Will you come and preach? Sure. And so there I went. I went to this youth center one night. I think maybe Brother Justin was with me. I'm not sure. There's a couple... Young guys that were with me that night. I got up and I was preaching to these kids. And I noticed this young boy, the son of that man who had bought the building, was just bothered. He's 13 years old. His name was Chris. Oh, just bothered. And afterward, I got to playing pinball with the kids and we were playing all these games. And this kid came up to me and said, Mr. Brad, downstairs in the basement, Chris is just crying. And he wants to talk to you. I said, okay. And I went down there. and He couldn't get it out. He was crying so hard. He said, I'm lost. I've never been saved. Let's pray. Within a couple months, guess what? Chris got saved. Then there was this man that I became really close to. And I'm still very close to. For a while, he was my best friend, I would say. Spent more time with it than anybody else. And we have this thing between us even still that we want to always talk outside in the winter. Because that's what we always did. You see, we'd get out of church and we'd say our pleasantries to everybody. And we'd go out and we'd park next to each other. And he'd always come and say, you know, I don't know if I'm saved or not. And it was the winter time. We'd always stand out there. And I was an idiot like I still am. And I only wear this jacket. So I'd stand out there and I'd shiver in the cold. And he'd shiver in the cold. And we'd just sit there and we would talk. And, and sometimes he'd say, yeah, I've definitely been saved. And then other times he'd say, no, I'm not saved. I know I'm not saved. He'd go back and forth and back and forth. And for about a year, he went back and forth. And then one day, I've told this story here before. I'm not going to get into all the details of it. I told him, I'll never call on you to pray until you know that you're saved, Roger. And one day I was driving to church, Sunday night service. Had no idea what was going on on his end. And God told me, 
call on Roger to pray the benediction. So that's what I did. I said at the very end of service, Roger, would you pray? And his eyes got that big. And he bowed and blubbered. And he came up to me afterward, and he said, we were outside. It's a beautiful day today, isn't it? Now, Roger was rough. Roger didn't talk about beautiful days. He was so rough, he had a devil tattooed on his forearm. He talked about how beautiful the day was. And he called me that week on Tuesday. He said, Brother Brad, God saved me. I said, when? He said, the moment you called on me to pray, God saved me. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, you see, that whole weekend I had determined I was done with church. I was confused. I was going to have to die lost because I was so angry that I couldn't figure it out. And I told God that Sunday afternoon before we went to church, God, if you are real, show me. Brother Brad promised me he will never call on me to pray until I know I'm saved. Have him call on me to pray the benediction. Ignorant me. I didn't know. I whimsically, Brother Roger, will you pray the benediction? That's why his eyes got so big. Because at that moment, he knew God was speaking to him. Then, this crazy preacher called me. Most of y'all know this crazy preacher. His name's Phil Mayle. And he said, Brother Brad, I feel a burden like we need to have a tent meeting in Fairland. And I said, Brother Phil, come on. And so you see, I was just getting out of the likes of this church. They were just starting to kind of kick me out a little bit. What over? Well, you can't accept Christ as your personal Savior. You got to really know him. And most of them didn't. And so towards the end of that, we had this tent meeting out about a half mile from the church and well, let me back up. Hold on. I got to tell this before I... A Methodist preacher called me before this in town. And he said, Brother Brad, will you preach at our sunrise service? You're the new pastor in town. Well, I wasn't the pastor, but I wasn't about to tell him that. I said, sure. He said, well, what we do is we invite the Methodist church and the Christian church and the other, uh, there's another church in town and the Baptist church, and we all get together and a preacher preaches. About six in the morning, and I said, sure. And I showed up that morning, and there were probably 120 or 150 people there that I had never seen before in my life. What did I do? I preached the gospel to them. And then that crazy preacher calls me. We go out to this tent. We go out to this field. This field always had a fish fry every year, a big carnival every year. That was my memory of that field. Little did I know as I was trudging along there, riding those carnival rides, that one day the gospel was going to come there. And there we were, and we were under this tent. And my sister, my younger sister, had a boyfriend. You can imagine how I felt about that. And he wanted to be a priest when he got older. Why are you dating my sister then, <laughs> right? But he, he, he's going to come and he got intrigued because my little sister begins to talk to him about the Lord. Then he begins to like our family and we begin to like him. And he comes out to this tent meeting 
And he's fascinated by this man that is just spiritually aglow and in love with Jesus. You know who else was there? Roger's son was there. Roger, the one that had the devil tattooed on his forearm. Roger, the one who, in his testimony, will tell you, I lived for the devil until I was 60 years old. I was going to hell. I was proud of it. And now he's evangelizing. He was our greatest evangelist. He'd go anywhere, talk to anybody about the Lord. And Roger still does that. Tony, Roger's son's name, he comes. They sit. And all these people from my childhood get fascinated with what's going on in town. And all these people just start attending this tent meeting. And one night, driving home, Nick, my sister's boyfriend, gets saved. I've told this church this before, and I say this in jest. He's the favorite church member I've ever pastored. Because when he got saved, he became a blaze. Oh, this word amazed him. He has an amazing recall to this day. His ability to remember the scriptures, I love it. I love listening to him preach. Because I remember back when he was just this young man that had just gotten saved and didn't know anything about anything about the Bible. Actually knew the opposite of that. He was in the negative because he had been indoctrinated into the wrong things. And then I was privileged to be there with him and watch him. And and God allowed me to help be a part of cultivating him and answering questions and and telling him things about the scriptures. And he just soaked and it soaked. And he, he just swelled and he swelled and he swelled and he swelled. And he got called to preach. He didn't call to the priesthood. He got called to the ministry. And just a few weeks ago, he accepted a pastorate over in Avon, Indiana. Oh, Tony. Tony was another one. Underneath that tent. I remember when I was out when Tony got saved. I heard him get saved, kind of. We were sitting around. He's on the altar night after night. He's praying at that tent meeting. And it was kind of sprinkling outside. And the restrooms were about 100 yards away. And I, I wanted to use the restroom, but I, I waited and I waited because I wanted to be there when he got saved. And finally, I just couldn't wait anymore. So I took off jogging to the restroom. And in the midst of jogging, I heard people and I turned around and I saw Tony, woo, walking around, shouting. And I ran back. I went back. Tony got saved. Why do I tell you this story? Paul was sent to the Gentiles to open the eyes of people in darkness. Shine the light to him. My dad one day, we were talking on the phone. That whole experience was coming to an end. It lasted for about 26 months. And it was coming to an end. And he asked me this question that I completely forgot about. He said, Bradley, are those the people that God told you you were going to be sent to? And I had never thought about it. It had never crossed my mind that whole 26 months what God had showed me. I just started laughing. I said, those are exactly the people that God sent me to. Now, here's the thing. We could, don't mistake in me and think I'm, I'm lifting myself up. I'm not. Here's what I'm saying. 
That story was true for Paul. That story in my life was true in that situation. And that story for every single one of us is true if we follow God's purpose for our lives. It looks different than what I ever expected. You know, here just a few months ago, we took my family in. You know, I thought my, my ministry, I was going to be a missionary. Brother Samuel can attest to this. One day after I was, in, I was in Ghana and we got done with a bunch of mission work and I sat in a room and I locked the door behind Brother Samuel. Just me and him in the room. There were a bunch of other missionaries. Justin was there with us and John Elliott and Jeff Elliott were there with us and, and Brother Todd Reynolds was there and I, I didn't want them to hear what I was going to ask Brother Samuel. I said, Brother Samuel, I think I might need to move to Ghana with my family. What do you think? We had a long conversation about it. And he basically made me a promise. He said, if you do, I'll help. I'll do whatever I can to help you. You see, in my plans, in my mind, I really thought I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to go to the other part of the world. Truth be told, I wanted to. Truth be told, I still want to. I love mission work. I love going to other cultures. I love seeing other people. I love preaching the gospel all over the world. I, I, there's something about that environment that just lights my fire. But let me tell you something. Last night as I was down here praying, God brought back a prayer. Of mine. You know, anecdotal tonight. I'm just going to have to be that way. Acts 10, I read to you last night. Your prayers have come up as a memorial before God. I told you last night, right? So I remembered here about three years ago. I hadn't pastored for a couple years. I was very disappointed that my life was not fulfilling the purpose that I thought it should. I'm just sitting here. I don't know what I'm doing in any part of my life. I hate my job. I really did. I despised my job. I, I was wanting to know, what do I do in life? Where do I go in life? I would go church to church to church preaching. And I would think, okay, this is it. This is where we're going. And then the Lord would reveal something different. This is where I'm going to head. And then the Lord would reveal something different. And for five years, for five years, I just wandered. That's how I felt. And, and Kathleen and I, you talk about hope deferred making the heart sick. How many times we drove away and the Lord would reveal to me, no, that's not the church you need to go to or that's not the work you need to engage in. And I was terrified to tell Kathleen because I didn't want to disappoint her. And I would say, I'm sorry, but this is not where we're supposed to be. And I can remember a number of times we'd be driving up the road, still 100 miles to go to get home, and tears would just be pouring down her face. Wanting to get to the end of this. Wanting to feel God's purpose and be somewhere where we knew this is where God has called us to be. At the same time, completely separate from that thought, I was praying something else. I was praying about something that I saw when I was 11 or 12 years old at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. You see, we went a week in revival and we came to the end of that week in revival and it was cold that whole week. And we had seen nobody get saved. And that last night, Brother Monty Shoulder's oldest son, Adam, came to the altar. And he was really calling out to the Lord. And just like last night, the preacher got up and he said, what do we want to do about this meeting? And nobody said anything. And so he said, well, I suppose it's going to come to an end. And then a non-member, Sister Michelle, got up. 
And she was just weeping. And she said, oh, please. Oh, please don't stop this revival. My son is lost. He needs to know the Lord. Please don't stop this revival. And she sat down. And the church it surprised me. It still surprised me a little bit. They didn't say anything. So she got up again. And she said this. If you don't meet tomorrow, I'll be on the front steps of this building with my children, hoping that a preacher shows up to preach the gospel. So we decided to have church that next night. Revival exploded. You see, five churches started coming to that revival. It was not Fellowship's revival anymore. Now, if you talk to people in Indy, that was our revival. Nine, at least, kids that week got saved. And I love to note, I love this detail, at least one from every church that came out. Many of my future best friends got saved in that revival. Three years ago, four years ago now, I began to get really afraid because where I was going to church all the time, it was cold. I would travel all over the country preaching in these different places, and it just felt so cold. And I began to pray to God. I'd say, Lord, at that time I had three boys. And I would think about that scene in Ezra where the old men wept because of the former glory of the temple. And the young men rejoiced because they had never seen the foundations cleared. And I would call out to God. And I would say, Lord, one time in my life, I felt and I saw revival. I felt and I saw people who were cold and dead, awakened, revived. I saw shouting at the altar of people getting saved. I saw rejoicing. I saw ministers getting called into the ministry in that revival. And it left a mark on me that as I was at my 16 and 17 years old, flirting with the world in high school, thinking about the prospects of the world in college, what I could not get over is the spiritual reality I saw when I was 13 at that revival. And my kids were growing up. And we were going to church and everywhere we went to church was cold and dead. And they were the only kids in their Sunday school classes. And their teachers weren't having lessons that were ready. They were pulling up coloring books and letting them color some story from the Bible. They weren't discipling them. And I would pray and I would say, God, I remember being in Missouri at a youth weekend And the power of God came down into gazebo when I was in shorts and a t-shirt with a bunch of my friends in shorts and a t-shirt. And the Spirit of God came down and prayer like I've never felt it descended in power for two or three hours. I have never since prayed for that long. I prayed. I said, God, I want my kids to taste it. I want my children to see it. Because all the discipleship in the world cannot replace 
the experimental knowledge of the Holy Spirit being manifested among His people. We need discipleship. But we need God's Holy Spirit descending from on high and the smoke, the cloud, filling the temple so much that the people have to run out because the glory is so great. You want to... You want your kids to stay in church? You don't need a program. You don't need contemporary music. You need the Spirit of God and power. And I saw it one time in my life. And I prayed three years ago. I said, God, would you grant me this prayer? Would you grant me the request of allowing at least one time in my children's lives I don't care if I get called to pastor a church there. I don't care if I go to a youth weekend, a revival. Send me to a place where my children are sitting in the presence of people, a people of prayer. And I was down here last night, and Sister Peggy called for a prayer for all those women. She said, all the mothers and grandmothers come up here. This is the second time she's done that since I've been here. She said, all the mothers and grandmothers come up here and let's pray. And I watched all of you ladies get up and descend to this front place. And I was down praying. And I stopped and I began to listen. And God brought back to my memory that prayer I prayed three years ago. I had totally forgot about it. And he said, I answered your prayer. (laughs) And I sat right here last night and I just laughed. (laughs) I said, thank you. My prayer went up as a memorial. (laughs) He reminded me, that was what I started laughing about. I just read that, Lord, just an hour ago. And you remembered this prayer that I had. I can't tell you, Old Union Church, how many hundreds of times that I have said in my prayers, God, thank you for sending me to this place. Thank you for sending me to this place. Thank you for these people. I don't speak, maybe I should, I don't speak of them, I speak of us. Because that's how I feel. And there will come a day when God says, okay, go somewhere else. But as the time remains, God has sent me here. And you know what I'm glad of? Sorry, Brother Samuel, but I'm glad I'm not in Africa. Not for any of the the natural reasons. For God's purposed reasons. I still, I've told my wife since then, you know, I just, I hope, I think, one day, we're going to live overseas. My heart is just there. I don't know if that's true or not. But you know who I trust with that? the one who has led me to this point. I don't need to know where I'm going, and neither do you. And listen to me, lost friend. The wonderful thing about throwing God the keys to your life is you're going to meet people. I, I think of Brother Ferris. I met him when I was about 15. I remember when I met him, Sister Adrian will remember this. We were sitting at Southside Church, and I punched her. I punched her, and I said, who are you? I'd never seen her and Justin before. I just happened to be sitting right next to them. Do you know how, I, how thankful I am that God put them in my life? 
the glories of being a doctor, the glories of being someplace, may have deprived me of a friendship that no money could ever buy. You, you couldn't give me a trillion dollars for what I have in this life right now. I don't have a lot of money. I don't. As a gospel minister, I don't expect to, to be honest. That's just not the path of a minister. Maybe God will bless it that way. Maybe he won't. You know what? I don't really care. I just, I just plod. I just walk. And I love that the Lord just tells me the next step to take. And lost friend, God calls you for a purpose. I love, I can only, I'm telling this narrative of my own life tonight. I didn't intend to do this, but that's the only one I know so well. But there are many of you out here that could give accounts of the exact same thing. So here's what I'd tell you to do. Surrender, not only for the world to come, but because the beauties what you'll experience here far exceed any path or device of your own. Saved friend. A word for you is I've already been long-winded, so I might as well just go another minute. Saved friend. Maybe they don't want to take this path because they don't see us walking it. I don't care how long and how deeply entrenched you are on the path that you have chosen. The word Brother Brian used tonight is the exact word that you need to exercise. Repent. Cut it off. Because let me tell you, whatever achievement and glory that you're looking to gain, if you'll abandon that, you're you're at the top. Paul was at the top. And he abandoned it. And how many hours and days worth of my life have the Apostle Paul poured into me? Christ. How much of my life, who I have become, do I owe ultimately to God, but through the vessel that Paul surrendered to being? And he continues to pour into me and to pour into me. We get so short-sighted, you know? You think I'll affect my children and my grandchildren. What if God desires your reach to go millennia beyond that? He desired that for Paul. He said, Paul, I've called you for a purpose. I wonder if Jesus chuckled when he said that. Chuckled in the sense of saying, you have no idea. You have no idea, Paul, what I've called you to. You may never be a missionary in Africa. You may never be a pastor. You may be a stay-at-home mom. Think, Satan uses that, you know. My reach is so small. Is it? I mean, is it really? God in heaven, you know, I've always been fascinated that people are so concerned with what gender they get. It just never seemed to matter to me. Why? You say, well, I want them healthy. Well, not even that. I don't know. Right? I mean, really? Like if God's purpose for my life was not to have a healthy child, if God's purpose for my life, He wanted to work in me, 
You know, I thought my oldest son, Judson, I thought Emmett, I thought Cal and were all going to be girls. And they weren't. And it just never mattered to me. Why? Because I always just thought, you know, God knows. God knows what I need. God knows. And he's going to give me this life. He's going to put it into my hands. And he's going to say, Brad, Kathleen, fashion that child into my image. Fashion that child, make it look like me as best that you can. And offer it to me. And everything about what you do, use that as a way to point your child to me. And I look at my children and I say, okay, Lord, you've given me four of them. Four little beings. Four eternal creatures that you love beyond words. You have entrusted them to me. And yet I know this. My wife, she manages that mess. Right? She's the one that has the hands most tightly fashioned around the clay. And what she pours in, and what she does day in and day out, Matters to not only God, matters not only to me, it matters to this church, it matters to the hundreds of people that my children in their life are going to meet, the thousands of people that my children are going to meet one day. It matters to my children's children, it matters to my children's spouse, and they're his in laws siblings and cousins. It matters to their neighbors in the future. It matters to the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren. And right now, that little seed, that little blooming, that little tree that's just beginning to come up, you, stay-at-home mom, have the tightest effect as it grows to affect perhaps thousands yet to be born. Thousands of people may be impacted. Think of the little blind woman, Fanny Crosby. Who knew? Remember I told you, don't just give me a healthy one, right? What if her parents would have said that? Perhaps she never would have seen all those spiritual things that she wrote about. But what did they do? They still poured into her those spiritual things. And through that blindness, she saw a spiritual world that most of us are completely blind to. And she wrote, and she wrote, and she wrote, and millions every Sunday sing and sing and sing to the glory of God. And one day, she was there in a crib with her mother. What, you think that's insignificant? God's called you for a purpose. I could go another hour. Why? Because God's purposes and designs are endless. And lost friend, that's why you need to be a Christian. One of the many reasons you need to be a Christian. Nowhere You tell me if Harvard Law School can do that for you. 
They can't. You tell me a promise or a contract with a sports team that can give you what I just described. You can't. God alone can. God has called you to a purpose. I've got another 15 verses that I ought to have gotten to, but I didn't. That's our message tonight. I pray, I pray, saved friend, lay them out a path in your life that shows them how they ought to walk. That's the message tonight. I pray that God would have used it in some way. I really hope he would use it in some way.